Father, that is our prayer, God, that we do, we believe that, that our, you are our everlasting Father, you are the all-creating one, you are God Almighty, and we know that uh, you have desired and chose to speak to us through your Son, but then even today you speak to us through your Word. So God, I pray that you would change our hearts, that God, in the midst of this, we would understand what it is that longs for and desires our worship, and that God, we would be people who worship you with completely with heart, soul, mind, and strength in everything that we do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're continuing our path series. And as you think about uh, this idea of this path, and I want you to, to really ask yourself, what is the power of worship? Or how does worship look like? Or, or what in my life is being worshiped? All this week, there has been talk of the game last week. Matter of fact, everywhere I went, people were like, did you see the game? Did you watch the game? Did you, could you believe it? It was, it was amazing. It was unbelievable. It was awesome. It was, you know, all of those types of things we begin to see. And while I would say, wow, what a game, the question then begins to be, how many of us walk away from a Sunday morning and go, wow, what a day? How many of us come prepared like we really prepare for Chiefs games or Broncos games or Raiders games or whoever else it is that we would be going to? We become great fans of great sports teams and with great effort, but at the same time, I begin to wonder, where's our passion? Where's our priority? Where's our worship? Because Anywhere you go, you see this. Matter of fact, last week I told you uh, that were, there were people that I know that were up because I was up at 5.30 and the first thing I saw was people who were like, we're already out tailgating. It was 5.30 in the morning. I was like, that's commitment. This morning I got up and at 6.15, it was the first post I saw of somebody saying that they were already out. The game doesn't start till 2. I was like, man, you are committed. 6.15 this morning, they were eating breakfast out at the parking lot at Arrowhead, ready to go. And while I, I love that desire, and listen to me, I am the biggest fan of sporting events and things like that. There is nothing that sets the tone for a game than going out early and maybe tailgating and doing things like that, and then going in with your friends and being a part of a big group of people celebrating something. Isn't that exciting? But let me ask you this question. When was the last time you came to a church service prepared and ready to go? Maybe with the idea that, hey, I'm going to show up early so I can tailgate with my friends and I'm going to give the loudest roar and applause and excitement for the God of this world who created me, who loved me, who sent his son for me. When was the last time we approached church in that way? Do we begin to see a rub? Because I know, listen, listen biggest fan in the world, and I love to scream at my team, and I love to scream for my team. But when was the last time that you got so excited and left so pumped up and ready to take on the week because you came to church and you were ready to go? And listen, I'm not trying to cast a stone because I think this is one of those things, but imagine, just imagine what your life would be like if, number one, you prepared and participated be before you came into the big game and that when you were in the big game, you celebrated with everything you got. Does that begin to make sense or resonate in anybody's heart? 
Man, we will scream unashamedly, loudly, shout it from the mountaintop, won't we, when our favorite team wins. But how often do we do that with the Lord in our lives? I mean, I want, I want to just put this into perspective and let, let you think about this. All across the country are people in cities everywhere who worship the teams that they support, whether it's the Chiefs or Broncos or Packers or Niners or whoever else it is. Maybe it's not pro football. Maybe it's college football. Some people I've run into, if you're down south in the, the panhandle of Florida and things like that, everybody looks and goes, wait, there's football on Sunday? Because for them, everything revolves around Florida State and Alabama and Mississippi and Tennessee and Florida and things like that. But I want you to think about what if every week we prepared for worship as the teams prepare for the games? What if every week that we as a church prepared just as the stadium prepares to host fans? What if every week the fans prepared to watch and to participate in celebrating the good news of the gospel just as fans prepare to go out and tailgate and prep ready in preparation to celebrate the Chiefs. What if every week that happened? What would happen? What would people think? What would people see? How would people respond? What would your heart feel when you left? Because here's one of the things that I oftentimes struggle when I hear people, and I've, I've heard multiple people say, well, I didn't really feel much. I didn't have the energy. We didn't have that excitement. And I wanna ask you this question when you think about it. What is it that brings the excitement and joy to you in your life, in your worship with Jesus? In Luke chapter seven, if you have your Bibles, we're gonna read it. I believe it begins to show us what it means to be a person who walks with or who worships with power. So today's sermon title is this whole idea of the power of worship. Luke chapter seven, starting in verse 36. We're gonna read these 14 verses all the way through 50. It's fairly long, but I want you to follow along with me, all right? Luke seven, starting in verse 36. Listen to what it says. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Big deal, right? Pharisee invites Jesus to have dinner with him. This is huge because Jesus accepts it. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. When a woman who lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on him. Now, anybody going, that's weird. Because doesn't it seem undignified? Doesn't it seem to be like, oh, that's the weird lady in the, like, oh, that's her. Listen to what happens. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, in other words, talking about Jesus, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered this Pharisee, Simon, I have something to tell you. And of course, the Pharisee, tell me, teacher, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other only 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and, and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me anything or any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You not, did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here's, here's the question or here's the idea when we think about this. Weekly, we're invited into a corporately, to corporately witness something beyond ourselves, to be in awe of the life-giving, life-flowing power of God every time we meet. That's the corporate idea of this gathering. We're motivated to tell others about what we've experienced in our life and how we've grown and what's going on. See, we all worship. As a matter of fact, worship is an activity of the human soul. It's something that we all participate in, whether we choose to believe it or not. As a matter of fact, I'll I'll bring this out. We all worship in some way, shape, or form because all we got to do is look at the popularity of things, whether it's athletes or music stars. When the recent band or the recent drummer for Rush just passed away, all the people blew up all over Facebook and media. Why? Because they knew him. They knew he was. They knew his songs. Matter of fact, I can show you how worship begins to set in our lives. You can recall, most likely, the songs you sang as a kid just by hearing the beat. And not just recall the song. You could probably quote it word for word if you're some way, shape, or form connected like that. You hear a song come on, and boom, the radio comes up, and what do you start doing? We say it's singing, The reality is what we're doing. We're rocking out. We're worshiping in some way, shape, or form to this song that's going on. See, worship takes place in our life whether we choose to admit it or not. It could be people. It could be movies. It could be uh, popular things. It could be music. It could be all kinds of things. But worship takes place. We are all worship. We were created to worship. Worship is an activity of the human soul. And that is why we're going to spend the rest of our lives declaring the worth of something. The question is, what? So I laid that question out to get you to think about this in this way. We will lose our ever-loving minds over a sporting event that, listen, I know, I love it. I love sports. I love the pump. I love the idea. But we will lose our ever-loving minds at a sporting event, and then we'll walk in here, and we'll be somber, we'll be callous, we'll be cold, we'll have no emotion, no excitement, no joy, and we stand here and go, hmm. Now tell me what screams come to my church when we do that. Tell me what screams that Jesus died for me and for you and he loves you and he loves me when we stand there and we have no emotion, no joy, no excitement, no passion. Tell me what screams that. Well, they should be reverent. Okay. Reverence has its place, but I want to ask you this thing. When was the last time you became undignified? And a lot of people are going, what do you mean undignified? What did this woman just do? How did she respond? In a way that cost her greatly. Matter of fact, today's big idea, if you remember anything, I want you to remember this, that worship is our response, both personal and corporate to God for who he is and what he has done. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate to God for who he is and what he's done. 
When we begin to understand that, we begin to see that worship is not just about music, but it's how I respond to God, right? It's how I respond to who he is and what he's done for me. It's how I respond in everything that I do. I have to begin to understand that if I'm on the path to growth, that my worship speaks volumes. And so what I do and what I say and how I respond is huge. Worship is my response, both personal in my daily life, and corporate, guess what that means? All of us together as a big, loud stadium proclaiming the name of Jesus, right? Yelling and tree. Matter of fact, if I was to have all of you stand up and we're just gonna scream as loud as you could, Jesus, some of you would be like, no, no, that's a little weird. No, 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 get on your feet and you'd be clapping and screaming and chanting, yelling, Jesus, thank you, blah, blah. You'd be like, no, no, you're, you're crazy, bro. You've lost your marbles, Do you see how it begins to get a little weird? So I want to dig into this text today, and I want to begin to ask this question. What is worship, and how do I respond? What is worship, and how do I respond? We, I believe, answered it, that it's our response, both personal and corporate, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. So what is worship, and how do I respond? Number one is this. Worship is an internal thing. It is something that's going on in my own life, in my own soul. It's internal. It involves a confession. As we dig into this, you should see that worship should matter to you because you will be and you always will be a worshiper. See, I believe that there's a battle wholeheartedly in our lives for worship. We become what we worship. If you don't like who you're becoming, then look at what is sitting on the throne of your heart. As a matter of fact, I've had people say, well, I don't experience Jesus in church. My question would be, do you experience Jesus every day? How you worship here on Sunday morning is only a reflection of what's going on in your life day in and day out. If you walk through with callousness, no care, no worry, no desire to read God's word, and then you come in on Sunday and you expect all of a sudden that God's gonna just throw the doors open and speak to your heart and then you're gonna have this joyful experience, you got another thing coming because here's the reason why. Most of us during the week go through life and we get a right hook, we get a left uppercut and things like that. And guess what happens? We stagger back and we go, oh, I just can't wait for Sunday. When the reality is that should be the first thing that pushes you into God's word because every day you need God's word in your life. Why? Because what goes on in your heart personally throughout the week carries over. Listen to me, carries over into here. Most of us look and go, I just need a fill. I just need an encouragement. I need Sunday to push me into the next week when the reality is it should be what goes on day in and day out that launches you into, guess what? A celebration of Jesus in here. That when I get that right hook or the left uppercut that has laid me back, that I know because of my daily walk with Jesus, that it's just one of those bumps in the road that I'm gonna face. And as a result, I can go to worship, I can go to church and I can worship with great abandon, knowing why? That God is gonna be with me through the thick and the thin, through the valley, through the mountaintop. He's gonna walk me through the bumpy roads and get me through the curves. Matter of fact, if you look at, I think it was Luke 2, I don't remember where I, I posted the other day on Facebook, Luke 3, I believe, and it's a reference to an Old Testament scripture. 
that when we are in Jesus, when we have that relationship with Christ, that we understand with great expectation. Listen to this. Luke chapter three, starting in verse four. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Why? Because every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough roads made smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Listen, worship is an internal thing. And what we see in this section of scripture right here is that this woman, this sinner, was understanding and confessing the internal things that were taking place. Listen, Jesus makes himself available to all types of people. The Pharisees invited him to dinner, and guess who shows up? The person that the Pharisees would have never invited to dinner. Here's the beauty of that. Do you know what the church in reality should be? The very place that invites the people that the Pharisees would have never had. But you know what the church oftentimes acts like? The Pharisees. Well, we don't want you here. Why are you here? If, we, if, if Jesus only knew who you were, if he was really a prophet, there's no way he'd let you cry on his feet and wipe him with your hair, let alone touch him. Listen, worship is an internal thing and worship makes a scene. Do you understand what that means? Listen, I know we're in Baptist circles, but this whole idea of what she does, I believe is one of the greatest texts in in all of scripture when it comes to worship making a scene. Because this lady who is known to be a sinner, listen to what it says again. When a woman who lived a sinful life, guess what that means? She's got a reputation. People know her for being a bad person, an immoral person, a sinful life. That's what they know her from. And it says she was in that town. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she brings this alabaster jar of perfume. She makes a big scene out of something that shouldn't have been that big a deal. Matter of fact, a place of, 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 of that magnitude, like a Pharisee's house where Jesus is at, I'm surprised she even got in, but she got there early and she got in. But not only did she get in, she got there and when she was prepared, she's weeping possibly for two things, because of the joy with her chance to honor Jesus or the realization that that her sin is great and forgiveness is greater. So she's reminded of her sinful past and as a result of her remembering her sinful past, listen, she responds in an act of worship that's very undignified. Could you imagine? You're sitting at the table. Now, we don't sit at the table like, or they didn't sit at the table like we do now. They reclined at the table. They had little pillows. They would sit at this table. The feet would sit back behind. Could you imagine eating dinner by a bunch of people who've been walking around dusty, dirty roads all day? Their feet probably reek, and you're trying to eat dinner. So they would keep their feet back behind and recline, and this lady starts crying. And as she starts crying, she's crying enough tears that it's wetting his feet and she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, my wife hates my feet even touching her. There's no way she's gonna take her hair and (laughs) wipe my feet with them, all right? And that's my wife. Imagine the undignified response that this lady is proclaiming over Jesus the Messiah. 
she realizes internally the state that she's in. And as a result, confessionally, by her actions, acknowledging her sinfulness and remorse and regret and weeping over it. There's this confessional thing that takes place when we worship. And listen, she comes, I believe, with great courage and with great cost. Because first of all, she could have been, no, I'm not going to do it. Do you know how weird that's going to look? Everybody's going to be looking at me. They're going to point. They're going to laugh. They're going to snicker. They're going to call me out. They're going to say things about me. Do you realize the cost of this lady coming out and doing this? And not just that, the courage to do that, the cost on top of that for the perfume. A lot of people said that this could have been the, the, the equivalent of a year's wage. Think about that. A year's wage. And she just poured that jar of alabaster perfume all over the feet of Jesus. And notice the response of the people. Notice the response of the Pharisees. Notice the response of Jesus. See, listen, and here's what I want you to understand. Every sinner and saint, you and I are given every opportunity to respond to the grace of Jesus. That's literally what we should get out of this text. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on him. This is huge. This is a confession of what she is and what she's done. And this anointing, the anointing and kissing express a deep reverence. So here's the things that play out. And what I just said, I believe that worship in our own lives, the power of worship here personally and corporately is this, that confession is huge, that we are gonna have a time where it's gonna be an undignified response. As a matter of fact, some people, especially if you're old school Baptist circles, just the lifting of arms would be like, oh my gosh, that's so undignified. But listen to me. There's confession, there's this undignified response. And what I mean is that that means it has to be, I don't care what other people think. I don't care how other people view me. So there's this confession, there's this undignified thing, but then there's a reverence. The reverence with the idea of kissing his feet in the jar of perfume. See, here's the way it usually goes in old school and new school circles. New school says, well, I'm gonna be so undignified, there's no reverence. And the old school says, well, I'm gonna be so reverent, I don't care about undignified, undignified, oh my gosh, I'd never, I'd lose my ever-loving mind. There has to be a balance in there. Why? Because the power of worship is huge to everybody else. And we're gonna dig into that just a little bit more. So number one, what is worship and how do I respond? It's internal, which means there has to be a confession base. Number two, it's vertical, it is a vertical thing. In other words, there's a celebration. Who cares what everybody else thinks? Let me ask the Chiefs fans. If you were in Denver, Colorado, at a Chiefs-Broncos game, what would you wear? Why? That's undignified. How would you do that? You're not embarrassed, are you, to be a Chiefs fan? So why wouldn't you wear your chief stuff? That's, that's, that's what we have to begin to understand when we talk about this idea of vertical celebration. Quit worrying about what everybody else thinks. 
When I come to worship Jesus, I don't worry about the person standing next to me or behind me or anything else. I am expressing thanks and reverence and awe in response to who Jesus is for what he's done in my life. So don't worry about what everybody else thinks. You want to lift your hands, lift your hands. You want to kneel, kneel. If you want to bow down, bow down. If you want to sing to the top of your lungs where everybody can't or hears you over everything else, then sing to the top of your lungs. But vertical idea, this vertical idea is a celebration. And remember, we're going to go back to verses 40 through 43. Jesus answered to Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said, two men owed money, a certain money, or to a certain money lender. One owed him a 500 and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one will love him more? Worship is our vertical response to God for what he has done for us. Let me ask this question. Who loves God more usually? The one who thinks he has nothing to be forgiven of or the one who thinks, oh my gosh, everything I've done needs to be forgiven? Who is it that loves God more? Who is it that's going to look and go, God, thank you for saving a sinner like me? And who is it that's going to go, God, thank you for making me not like that dude? You see what we just did? You remember the Pharisee, right? Lord, thank you for making me not like this poor person. The poor person says, thank you for saving me. The vertical response and celebration is huge. Why? Because when I walk through the doors and I'm corporately worshiping here, remember there's, there's two separate things going on. There's personal and corporate. When I'm corporately worshiping here, I shouldn't care about what everybody else thinks. But I respond to God for who he is and what he's done in my life. Remember, worship is my response. It's our response, both personal and corporate to God for who he is and what he has done. Every Sunday, we get a chance to corporately respond to God, yet we enter, listen, yet we enter thinking about games, food, work, family. We come in unprepared or unready for God to even speak. And this woman came, listen, ready to be ridiculed, and yet she didn't care, and she responded to God with great love. And that's what he's trying to get across. Which one of them will love him more? It's this idea that this woman showed the love that she had for Jesus. Listen to John, or I mean, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus replied to this to a Pharisee who said, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your what? heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And so when we respond in worship, this personal and corporate worship, it is a response to God for who he is and what he's done. And so there's that vertical idea. In today's world, who is going to respond with great love? See, I believe wholeheartedly that the money lender obviously depicts God. The debt is sin, the two debtors depict different levels of sinners. One who feels like he owes less, a Pharisee, and the one who owes more, the woman. And here's what worries me about this at times. 
I believe wholeheartedly that sometimes when we're involved in the church and we consistently respond and react and do what we do, that oftentimes churches tend to look more like Pharisees than we do look like the woman because we begin to get very dignified and very reverent to the point where we ostracize and outcast those who need Jesus the most. Personal and corporate worship is a vertical thing, not just an internal thing. It's a vertical thing. It's a celebration. It's a remembering who I was before Jesus and where Jesus has brought me to today. See, the nature or the sinner who realizes the nature of the forgiveness received freely will be in a position to love God, I believe, in a greater way. It's not what the sinner is that Jesus sees, but what the sinner could be through God's eyes. And I just ask that. We have to have this approach as well. It's not who the sinner is that we see, but it's who the sinner could be through God's love and what God wants to do. Think about that. Think about the beauty of that. Think about where you were and where God has brought to you. Think about the friends who are lost, who are dying, who don't know Jesus and where God wants to take them in your own life, where God wants to bring them along and you get to watch that. Think about that because it's the vertical celebration of worship that is huge. We have to begin to understand. So Simon in verse 43 says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And listen to what Jesus says. You have judged correctly. Listen to me, church, and I hope, I, I, I hope you hear this with, with great grace. But we have to understand that those who are farthest from Jesus are those who Jesus longs for the most. He left the 99 to pursue the one. What does that proclaim to us? He loves us, he valued us, he bought us, he purchased us, but guess what he's willing to chase after? The one. The one. Are you willing to chase after the one? Are you willing to go after the one? Are you willing as a result of a response to God in vertical worship to say, God, I'm willing to lay aside my desires and my ideas and my thoughts and I'm gonna go in in obedience to you and your word. I'm gonna chase after those who are lost. That's a vertical response in worship. So remember, worship is our response to God for who he is, both personal and corporate, for who he is and what he's done. And we have to have that approach as well. Number three, what is worship and how do I respond? Number three is this, worship is a horizontal thing. And it means proclamation. Listen to what happens in verses 44 and following. We read the text already, but it says, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for, your, for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. See, this whole idea is what she does in front of all of those watching is proclaims the worth of Jesus in her life. She proclaims the worth of Jesus in her life to all those who were sitting there and standing there. And here's the crazy thing. Those who were sitting there, standing there, I guarantee it didn't keep their mouth shut, did they? They were down at the local 7-Eleven the next day going, dude, you would not believe this crazy lady. She was crying all over the feet of Jesus. And then she wiped her, his feet with her hair. Talk about a crazy loon. Then she poured a year's worth of perfume all over this dude's feet. Do you imagine what kind of poor people could have been taken care of with that? You know that's the kind of conversations that were going on. 
Her response in worship is a proclamation or a proclaiming the good news of who Jesus was. And when we personally and corporately respond to Jesus in worship, guess what that is? It's a proclamation of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do in our lives. It's a response to say, God, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, they come for me. God, you will never leave me nor forsake me. Why? Because you're going to walk me through every difficulty, every trial, and every struggle that I face. God, I know that without you, I could not have been saved, but with Jesus, all things are possible. And that I have salvation now, and that, that, is, that, that means that, that those who are around me, I can proclaim the good news of the gospel. Why? Because it's not the power of me who changes people's hearts, but it's the power of Jesus in me and Jesus working through his word that changes people's hearts and lives. And so the beauty of the proclamation of the gospel is our horizontal response in worship because it's a personal thing that goes on day in and day out. How many communities of believers are guilty of responding to the broken and lost with the attitude of the Pharisees? And I would say wholeheartedly that I believe we do a fairly good job, but there's always room for improvement. I believe wholeheartedly that we wrap our, rounds around, our arms around people who are broken, who are needy, who are in need of Jesus, and I believe that we accept them very graciously and very greatly. But I always say there's always need to improve. There's always room for improvement. It's easy to close people off and believe that they are beyond God's reach, but it's hard to be undignified in worship and to respond so that we can see people come to Jesus. So please hear me out in this. This is a not attack on anybody's personal style. This is not an attack on you personally as an individual and how you decide to worship or anything like that. But I wanna challenge you with this. When you come in on Sunday mornings, do you come in prepared? Have you been tailgating and taking part in the food day in and day out, prepared and ready to go to the game? Or do you wait until the game and then think, oh, I'm just gonna go get some food because the last time I was at a Chiefs game, you wanna get food during the game, you're gonna miss a whole quarter of the game. Trust me, just went with Joe. Joe's like, you gonna get anything to eat? Nope, because I'll miss a whole quarter. We did <laughs> because the quarter was already going on when we walked in, all right? But I want you to think about this. If you don't eat consistently daily beforehand, your response on Sunday morning in here is completely different. How you prepare for Sunday speaks volumes. And I believe wholeheartedly that for some reason, we as American church took this idea of Sunday to be the launching pad for the week when the reality is that everything that goes on in my life on the daily basis prepares me for what? my response corporately to be a part of encouraging and building up and loving others and responding to God in the corporate act of worship. This is one lady, one lady who understood the cost that it was gonna cost her most likely reputation, it was gonna cost her financially, that people were gonna talk, but she didn't care. And you wanna know why? because she knew who Jesus was and what he was doing for her. The proclamation that we're talking about is massive. When people far from God hear those people who are close to God giving heartfelt praise to God, when they see heartfelt worship, they're intrigued. 
There is something that sparks an interest. And it's not just us, but Jesus, who has the right to forgive sins. He is the one who calls the heart to change. So people who are seeking may not understand all that happens in the house of worship, in the church, the meaning of a song or the significance of communion or baptism, but they know joy when they see it. And they know lives being changed when they see it. They know when lives are impacted and they can read and see how people's lives are changed. And when they do, they want what those people have. And so my question is, when people come into our church, do they want what we have? If we brought in a bunch of lost people and said, hey, we're gonna proclaim the good news of Jesus and how we worshiped and what we said and how we responded with joy, without joy, with grace, without grace, what would people see if they were to come in the doors of our church in corporate worship? Because I believe wholeheartedly this is the one thing we've tried to do. I believe that the church in some way, shape, or form has tried to take emotions out of worship. Now, I've said this in the past and I'll always stand by this. Emotions can be the playground of Satan. And I'm not calling about uncontrolled emotions and just being weird and going crazy. But I want to ask you this, when it comes to the emotional side and the joy and the excitement and passion for Jesus in your life, if people were to stand next to you or behind you and watch you worship, what would they think? Would they want anything to do with Jesus? Jesus is the greatest thing that has ever happened to any of us in our lives. But yet so often we respond like, yep, I got it. We're good. How's that work? I want to end with this. As long as I'm getting personal, I'm just going to step just a little bit closer. And I want you to think about it this way. Parents, What are your children learning from you in your response in worship? Do they see the excitement as you get ready to go to a football game or some other activity? Do they see you prepare for worship as you do for vacation? Do they see you hunger to arrive at church, seeking the face of the Father, seeking God and everything? Children, I believe wholeheartedly, are just like unbelievers, and they're watching and they're looking, and they're trying to decide what do my parents really believe is a priority? What do they really value? Who do they really love? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace in your son, Jesus. And we thank you for this story, this picture, this truth that we see wrapped up in this text, that we can be people who worship and we can understand that that worship comes with great cost, that it may cause others to talk about us, but we don't need to be worried about those other people. It may cause others to point fingers, but we don't need to worry about the fingers being pointed, but that we would respond to you. First of all, that we would confess any of those things in our lives, those sins that we have battled and struggled with, that we confess them to you, that we repent of them, that we can walk in truth and light with you. 
And then we can understand that in our response, our vertical response to you, that there's great excitement and great joy, that we can stand with uplifted hands or we can kneel and bow before you, understanding that we know that it's only through you that we have a, only through Jesus that we have a relationship with the Father. And so we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that just in the midst of this, that we would be challenged and encouraged, that we would understand that as we worship, as we sing, as we belt out, as we proclaim the name of Jesus and call out to him for help and strength in our times of difficulty, that we are proclaiming the gospel to those who are around us. God, may we be a church that is filled with life and the life that Jesus brings. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're gonna pass.